Hey, folks, this is Andras. And this is Brian. Happy John Brian's birthday to you. Yeah. Uh, Happy birthday to John Brian. How old is he? He seems like a young That's lad, a rude question to ask. 34, 35. He's 20. He he's great. perpetually 27. He's, Forever. He was born on December 11th, 1963. You do the math. Anyway... Uh, yeah, we're about to, we're about to dive into this. Want to say thank you to everyone who gave us nice comments and likes on the Thunderheart incident at Oglala episode, particularly on Instagram. You love John Trudell. And that says, that speaks well of you. That speaks well of you, that you love John Trudell. I, I think our posts about John Trudell are the most popular we've had on our Instagram feed yeah i was shocked yeah 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 it's uh maybe the world is just a little less wrong than we thought (laughs) just a little so you a tiny just a little bit tiny little little bit a little bit we'll take our we'll take our, our our little our little shafts of light through the through the ever present darkness we'll take it where we can get it So you've been tying in this podcast with your other show, Radio 8-Ball. Have you gotten into any John Bryan stuff yet? Have you tied it in to this episode? Yes, it's already recorded. And by the time you're hearing this, it will be out on the Radio 8-Ball show feed. My question was informed by our discussion about John Bryan. It's actually, I I think we, we may have spoken about it already, but... We also may have recorded that for an episode that comes out later, but a film of mine called The Attic Expeditions, which I filmed in 1999 in L.A., is getting a 20th anniversary DVD release on Severn Films. And when I was in L.A. shooting that, I was attending a lot of John Bryan shows at Largo, and my question is about a very strange and spooky thing. That happened at one of these, but you'll have to tune in to the Radio 8 Ball Show's episode <laughs> to find out what that spooky thing is. I would highly recommend listening to this one and then checking out the Radio 8 Ball episode okay. instead of the other way around because, well, to be honest, this one's better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited about this episode. I love John Bryan. I'm a huge fan, and, uh, and I guess... Uh, you know, I, I really hope that you, Brian, I hope you like this episode, and uh, and I really hope that the listeners like this episode. But you know who I really hope likes this episode? Who? John Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to. I would hate to have done all this work to celebrate his birthday. Like, you, you work so hard to give someone a present, and then they're like, this is the last thing that I wanted. <laughs> and there's no place for him to send it back there's no like that he can't return it to some store for credit (laughs) i'd like to return this podcast i I don't want it in the world uh well uh well i do hope you enjoy it uh you'll get to the end of this and then realize that there's more this is going this is going to be a two-part episode because there's so much to explore about john bryan which may be surprising to those of you who have never heard of this person, but by the end of this episode, I think I can promise you this. You will know 
who John Bryan is, and you'll never forget. Is that the end of our intro, Brian? I guess that's the end. I guess that's it. <laughs> that seemed like a fitting end. Okay. It was, it, was like a, it was like a warning and a celebration at the same time. And you'll never forget. <laughs> it's like it's like uh, Jacob Marley showing up and just t- telling you about John Bryan. Oh, that's that's a, actually that's a, that's funny because uh, Jacob Marley is the topic of one of the songs on Amy Mann's whatever which is where many of us first started to notice the man named John Bryan as a member of that band and a producer and a player on that record. Cool. Maybe I'll leave all that in there. Radio 8 Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about John Bryan and Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love and John Bryan. <laughs> oh, echo? yeah. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we champion films and film artists who the world is wrong about. And I'm one of your hosts, Andras Jones. And I'm Brian Connolly, another host. Another host. In fact, another host <laughs> of this show. And we're doing something a little bit different this, this, this week, Brian. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. We're celebrating, first of all, we're celebrating the birthday of John Bryan. Uh, his birthday is on December 11th. This comes out on December 8th. And you may be saying, you may be saying a couple of things yourself. First of all, wait, wait. What's how is the world wrong about Punch Drunk Love? Punch Drunk Love is a great film by one of the acknowledged great directors of our time, Paul Thomas Anderson. The world isn't wrong about this film. The world loves this film, and this film deserves love. So, uh, how can the world be wrong about this film? You might be asking that, and you might also be asking yourself. Who's John Bryan? And that <laughs> gets to how how the world and you may be wrong about this film and this artist until we get to it. So uh, um, before we jump into talking about this, I Brian, I dumped a, a whole bunch of John Bryan material on you oh my a, a couple months ago and just was like, okay, start... <laughs> 
start doing your research on this. I know it's a lot, but uh, <laughs> we're going to really dig into this at some point in the future. And that day has come. So yeah. you want to just give me a little bit of an... We're going to go in piece by piece, but you want to go give me a big overview of what what you knew about John Bryan before I yeah. laid that on you and where you're at with him now. So, like, I really only knew him as the composer of a few, a few movies. Like, I, you know, was first introduced through Magnolia uh, with, with the, with the uh, Amy Mann songs that he produced. And I'm assuming he picked the two Super Tramp songs for the soundtrack. But then... Uh, I went back and watched Heart Eight for the first time, uh, and the soundtrack to that is really classy and great, um, but kind of different than Magnolia. And I was like, oh, that's just like a good—he's a good composer. And then Punch Drunk Love was sort of like the whoa, baby, who's wait, who's this guy? Like this is amazing. And the mu- and I had I bought the soundtrack immediately to Punch Drunk Love and listened to it all the damn time and still to this day when I think of that movie the first thing that comes to my head isn't like a scene in a movie or acting it's the music that's the first thing that pops in my head are the songs from that movie and then that was kind of all I knew about John Bryan I had no idea that he his music career went so far before making movies I had no idea about sort of like why these why Paul Thomas Anderson and these other people liked him so much. I never really heard the things that he produced for other people. So it was sort of like this big treasure trove of like, oh my God, like there's so much here. This is amazing. And you know, because you hear people endlessly talk about other composers like Danny Elfman and John Williams, and you rightfully so, they're both pretty great in their way, or used to be. <laughs> but nobody's really talking about John Bryan, and I feel bad that I have been so ignorant despite being such a fan of his just based on the few movies that I really liked his scores for. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot there. Uh, so uh, shall we shall we, shall we start unpacking this? Oh man, let's uh, let's do it. Okay, so yes, everyone knows Punch Drunk Love is great, but even when people are talking about P.T. Anderson, mostly I hear people talking about Johnny Greenwood, mm-hmm. who started working with P.T. Anderson after Punch Drunk Love, and I think has scored all of his films since then. Yeah. And, again, he's great, but I mean, John Bryan is just is probably my favorite musical artist. Wow. And certainly my favorite active, currently active musical artist. And yeah, probably almost definitely my the favorite artist of my generation. That's because Prince precedes me generationally. But I feel like that's the only person that deserves comparison. Uh, that, that those two can be compared. Uh, but everyone else sort of would love to have John Bryan working for him, basically. <laughs> and uh, and so the reason I'm choosing to focus on punch drunk love is because i feel like punch drunk love is the apotheosis of what i consider to be a very fruitful and important collaboration between john bryan and paul thomas anderson as anderson was finding his way in the world as a director and beginning his his amazing career and 
uh, and I feel like so I want to explore what led up to that, and then we can sort of we can start to unpack some of John Bryan's other film scores and some of his other collaborations, and we'll be I'll be getting into them as I uh, set the scene here. So, what's what I think is really important to understand John Bryan and Paul Thomas Anderson is to understand the scene at a club called Largo in Los Angeles in the mid to late 90s and John Bryan's role as the central creative force around which that scene formed. Uh, I'll tell you first, I, I first heard about John Bryan when I was recording an album called The Hard Feelings with my band Mr. Jones and the Previous at a studio called Q Division in Boston, Massachusetts in the winter of like 1993-1994. And our engineer was a guy named Mike Deneen, and when he found out I was a fan of the band Jellyfish, he told me about this guy who was producing songs for Amy Mann at the same studio. And this guy had replaced Jason Faulkner on guitar for Jellyfish's second and final album, Spilt Milk. And Mike played me a track called Superball from the album that would become Amy Mann's I'm With Stupid from 1995. And this was around the same time there was a big buzz around L.A. for the band The Greys, which was a kind of supergroup featuring John Bryan, Jason Faulkner, and fellow multi-instrumentalist songwriter Buddy Judge and drummer Dan McCarroll. And they made one album called Rochambeau in 1994, did one tour, and then they broke up uh, under the weight of too much talent and ego and politics and, you know, just what breaks bands up. Um, there's actually a great story that Buddy Judge told about a Grey's show when I... Uh, played a gig with him at a club called Genghis Cohen in 1998 and he said that you know after every after every great show someone would come up to me and say like you you have the best songs you're the best and they suck and, <laughs> and then you'd like kind of look at the corner of your eye and there's someone you know heatedly speaking to someone else in the band but... <laughs> we'll just talk about that And it's a dynamic that happens in bands, I think, a lot. And it's why I have huge respect for especially songwriter-driven bands that stay together. If you can, if you can stay together despite everyone sort of pitting you against each other, <laughs> then that's really what it takes to be a great band. Yeah. So... Anyway, it was around this time that I was first invited to see one of John Bryan's regular Friday night shows at uh, Old Largo. There's a Largo has since moved. If you know Hollywood, it's moved from Fairfax to La Cienega. But back when it was on Fairfax, uh, Fairfax Boulevard, across from Cantor's Deli in Hollywood, he would put on these shows every Friday night in this tiny little supper club, basically. And it's not hyperbole at all to say that these shows changed my life. They were, at the time, I was a, I was a songwriter pursuing a career doing that and seeing these shows just changed. Basically, I started seeing them in 1997 and I created Radio 8 Ball in 1998. 
definitely inspired by John to see that there were just the the he expanded what was possible as a songwriter and a, as a musician to the point where it was like oh it's not enough to just write a good song there has to be more there has to be this other aspect of magic or synchronicity or inspiration that's happening in the moment or it's just you know just kind of a dead fish anyway so I, I'm sorry that I'm inserting myself into the story, but it's kind of hard to take myself out of it because this informs the way I saw John Bryan evolve from this kind of a local phenomenon. Uh, let me explain it, what happened. So at Largo, what John Bryan would do is he would engage in these feats of virtuosic experimentation that was uh, it was like a kind of musical magic show. And uh, and. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it in terms of a display of overwhelming talent judiciously and generously deployed. So it's just like he had so much talent and there was no like showing off. It was like, hey, I can do all these things. Let's play. (laughs) Right. And the tiny stage at Largo would be full of instruments, not just guitars and basses and drums and keyboards, but weird little guitars and strange little like music boxes and odd keyboards and he could play all of them and not just expertly but really sensitively and with like a sense of humor about it and one of the tricks he'd do is he'd build songs on the spot based upon suggestions from the audience so the audience would say would shout out titles and He'd go to the drum set and start playing a drum part that he'd loop, and then he'd add bass, and then some piano, and then multiple guitar tracks, and then he'd sing and play over it, improvising the lyrics. And and these are not the kind of easy blues or folk songs favored by comedy improv groups that are pretty easy to do. These were complex chord structures and harmonies and hooks created out of nothing right in front of us. And... Like I said, it's no coincidence that it's about this time I started doing Radio 8 Ball. And it's it's like, it was like being, it was like watching it, he turned everyone in the room into Salieri. And, And we loved it. You know, to be in the room with that kind of talent is, again, when it's so generously given, it's, there were people, I'm sure there were, I definitely met people who would be like, Oh, John Bryan, I could do that. You know, it's, he's a show off. But I always felt like that was even a that was a kind of compliment from a certain kind of personality. But if you were someone, <laughs> if you were an artist who was confident in what you did, and you were at these uh, these shows, and they were every Friday night, you couldn't help but be inspired. Um, yeah, I, it was the closest thing I've come to experiencing the musical feats that you hear described about Mozart or about Prince. Uh, but it wasn't just a one-man show. Every night, he would be joined on stage by people like Elliot Smith and Amy Mann and Fiona Apple and Ben Montench and John Zorn and Rufus Wainwright and Neil Finn and just some of the coolest cats in L.A. dropping by and finding their way on stage, playing until the wee hours as John put away Guinness at an astounding rate while <laughs> never losing his balance or his tone. And... So, yeah, don't get the idea that this was some austere thing. That's why I compare it to, like, I don't know if it's like Mozart, but it's definitely like Tom Hulch in in uh, in Amadeus. Like, he just seemed like this 
super talented kid who was just having so much fun that it brought out the fun in you. And the audiences for these shows would be filled with even heavier hitters, like Elvis Costello or like Mike Deneen or like Paul Thomas Anderson, who uh, was, of course, at this time beginning a relationship with Fiona Apple, who John Bryan was producing, as well as producing for Amy Mann. So let's go Let's now switch a little bit over to P.T. Anderson. So his first film, Hard Eight, had a score that was composed by Michael Penn, who was and remains married to Amy Mann with John Bryan. So at the time, Michael Penn was the star and there was this guy who was working with him. But if you know John Bryan and how much skill he brings to it, it's... A collaboration with John Bryan is always going to be at least 50% John Bryan unless you put a stopper on it because he's just that good. And if you knew, if you watched the way he would play with other people, he's one of those players who just by playing with you makes you better. I've watched someone get on stage who wasn't a very good player. And by the end of the song, that musician was better because John figured out how to play in between their mistakes and then basically <laughs> lift them up with his talent. So this is no knock on Michael Penn, but if you're working with John Bryan at that time, it's John Bryan working with you. Um, and again, no diss to Michael Penn. He's great, but we all fall short when compared to this level of talent that John has. And I think that's been proven out. Well, yeah, so then we got on Boogie Nights, we have Michael Penn, and he's acting as a composer on it and taking the full credit for it, which is understandable. He doesn't want to be known as, like, the guy who needs John Bryan's help, but then he needs John Bryan's help, and he gets, and John Bryan contributes <laughs> some music, and he's on the film set. And also at this time... It's well known that P.T. Anderson is developing a real deep love of Amy Mann's music, which ends up being heavily featured in Magnolia. Of course, if you're a fan of Amy Mann's music at that time and you're going to Largo as much as we all, as he and I both were, probably he was going there even more than me because he lived there and because he was dating people, someone who was on stage a lot. Uh, then if you're a fan of Amy Mann, then you're definitely a fan of John Bryan. And so I see this coalescence of like, P.T. Anderson is dating Fiona Apple. He's getting obsessed with Amy Mann. He's already worked with John Bryan on two films without actually having John Bryan be the composer. And this all leads to Magnolia. And... The opening of Magnolia specifically, that version of Harry Nilsson's One. Yeah. That is, it's sung by Amy Mann with John Bryan, but really performed, that's a John Bryan production. And to me, that opening of that movie is so... It's impossible for me to remove the experience of Largo and what John Bryan was able to do with that music in terms of weaving all of this stuff together in, you know, in a sonically and performance wise and 
in, uh, with his intelligence and all of all of these strands flowing through this music. And it's very hard for me to look at that scene and not think, oh, well, that's Paul Thomas Anderson trying to do cinematically what John Bryan did on those stages. And then when you see how much that film is in love with Amy Mann and John, you said John uh, picked the songs or and uh, played on the Amy Mann songs. He also composed the score. So... This is Paul Thomas Anderson really handing the sonic keys of his, you know, first really big swing, I'm a great director film to John Bryan. And for me watching it in a way like, it's not just handing it to John Bryan. This is a case of being so inspired by John Bryan. Yeah. You know, I just can imagine like if you were a a film director from... Minneapolis at a time when nobody else knew Prince and he was just tearing up the city and you were there at all those shows. There's a way that you might get more famous than him, but you will all but at that point you know that like who's who's a fully formed artist and who's still evolving. And <laughs> you're still evolving and you had the the opportunity to be around this fully formed you know, genius is a word that's thrown around a lot, and I think it's thrown around by in a way that, like, it's like, if I can't do it, then it must be genius, right? If I can't imagine how you do it, then it must be genius. And I think that's a a, uh, a faulty definition, but it's hard to look at what John Bryan was able to do that nobody else could and not say that there's some level of genius to it. And if you're a guy like Paul Thomas Anderson... And you're there for all of that. You just can't help but be inspired by it. Yeah. And you can tell that he was like locking in on John Bryan because around the same time he did the, he directed the pilot the, for the John Bryan show, which never happened. And you can find it online. Just look up John Bryan show. And it's directed by P.T. Anderson. I think also from the same time as Magnolia. It's like late 90s. And it was them kind of the ca- trying to capture these Largo shows on a, on a TV show. And it's great. Like people should definitely watch it. It didn't work in terms of becoming a show. There's just the one episode, but you can tell that like this is like what's in P.T. Anderson's mind is like just, he's obsessed with this guy <laughs> in his world. Not just because he's dating uh, Fiona Apple, whose albums are being produced by John Bryan, and being into Amy Mann. It's just like everything seems like there's a lot of John Bryan going on in Paul Thomas Anderson's head in the late '90s. Yeah, yeah, and. It's just one of those things where this is where the, the world is wrong. When you say, oh, Magnolia is all about Paul Thomas Anderson's love for Amy Mann. I'm like, mm, mm, no, it's his love for John Bryan and Amy Mann. <laughs> like, it's not like a, a knock on Amy Mann. And I would hope that she would give credit where credit's due. I mean, she's a great songwriter. I'm, you know, I'm. I consider myself a, a a solid songwriter, but I. There's a level of musicality that, you know, if you can play a couple of instruments and write a good song, that's a that's a really wonderful thing. But you can't do what John Bryan can do, and if you have someone like that, then it's a collaboration, even if your name's above the title. So. Yeah. So that brings us to Punch Drunk Love, and this is where we sort of pick this all off. And my, so my feeling about Punch Drunk Love is that it's a film that 
is way more concerned with color and sound than with plot or character. Definitely. Not that those things aren't important, but this is such a, that's what makes it such a unique film. In fact, when I yeah. first saw it, I described it as the story of a blue suit that falls in love with a red dress. <laughs> uh, and I meant that as a compliment. Like, that's great. Uh, but even more than that, it's the story of someone who is transformed by his contact with music and synchronicity in the form of a toy piano that is mysteriously delivered to him after the random and never explained car accident that begins the film. So John Bryan is known for collecting odd keyboards and for making music out of toys such as music boxes and small pianos at Largo. He also dated Mary Lynn Rajkub, who plays one of Sandler's seven sisters in the film, and again, Nilsson's music appears in the form of He Needs Me from the Popeye soundtrack. And so there's this sort of Nilsson-John Bryan connection in the world of Paul Thomas Anderson. And sort of like what I was saying is like if you're a, if you're a filmmaker from Minneapolis and you were super inspired by Prince before anyone knew him, and then you get to make a bunch of movies and you make a movie where at the very beginning of it, your hero has a purple guitar dropped off in front of his work. <laughs> Everyone would be like, yeah, that's an homage to Prince. But because most people didn't go to Largo and don't really know who John Bryan is, they didn't look at it and say, holy shit, Paul Thomas Anderson's going to make is make a movie about John Bryan or about his love of John Bryan. Or like John Bryan isn't just making the music for this. He's not just the subtext. He's the text. Something, And especially coming from Magnolia, where it's a film like it's like, OK, I'm going to really sh- demonstrate how inspired I am by Amy Mann's songs. And this is just like the next level of like, oh, now I'm just going to express how inspired I am by, by John Bryan's artistry. And I don't want to say that John Bryan is like the Adam Sandler character, but if you look at the Adam Sandler character as being an analog for someone like John Bryan or Paul Thomas Anderson, who's got a genius idea and doesn't quite know how to fit in the real world. And then music or art and love transforms him and gives him purpose and leads him into a better world. I feel like that's a that's a fair reading of the film. And well, this is where the title of our show kind of lets us down. Because I don't feel like the world is wrong about this. I just feel like the world is ignorant and what I'm <laughs> endeavoring to do with this episode is to blow away that ignorance and yeah. give you this information because if you watch Punch Drunk Love as an invitation to the world of John Bryan I think you'll have if you already love this movie and you've already had a great experience with it this is a whole new way to have an even deeper different experience with it especially if then as we're going to do with this podcast i hope that it uh that it invites you into this whole larger musical world where most people who most people who know the artists that john bryan has worked with and love their music don't know that they love john bryan in the same way that people don't know that paul thomas anderson in magnolia and 
Punch Drunk Love is expressing his love and his esteem and his respect for John Bryan. Um, so, okay, that's that's my long rambling <laughs> intro to this, but I needed to set the set the tone or set the scene. So yeah, so Brian, just I want to stop talking and let you share some thoughts here. <laughs> well, it, what's interesting about Punch Drunk Love. As you can tell when you watch it, it's not a movie that a filmmaker made and then passed it off to the composer and said, okay, now you put the score to the movie. Like, it's clearly a collaboration because it's like the no- even the notes that Adam Sandler's playing on harmonium, is that what that instrument's called? I think that's what it's called. Is like, that's got to be the notes that John Bryan came up with because then that sort of like works into the songs that are in the movie. And so this isn't just... A pass the torch. I'm passing it off to the this composer. Like you can tell that there must have been deep conversation. It's like it really is like a musical. I'm guessing is how the collaboration worked. But it, the movie's not a musical in terms of people singing, but like the music guides the movie from scene to scene, from moment to moment. That it must like in my mind, John Bryan was like on the set while they were making the movie. <laughs> you know, like it, it feels like the composer feels that embedded into the movie, unlike most movies I've ever seen that aren't musicals. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting to note, and, and like, I wonder, like, we talked about how, like, John Bryan, can this, this was sort of like, this is sort of a transitional movie for Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, you can definitely look at his first three movies, then this is kind of in the middle, and then there's kind of after this. Like, that's sort of how I look at his movies so far. Like, you definitely have a, a shift in style and a shift in the type of movie he makes. And this is sort of the movie where he's embracing more abstract imagery and kind of doing away with a more strict plot and character drive and making it a little more... It's it's becoming art, you know? <laughs> like, in what we know from uh, Master and Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread and, like, all the movies he made after this. And... It is too bad that he didn't continue with John Bryan and his but I love the John R. Greenwood stuff. But what's interesting that I realized is that the three the movies that John Bryan worked on the most with Paul Thomas Anderson, which would be Heart Eight, Magnolia, and this one, all take place in kind of present day. And then the movies that he wasn't involved in at all, or very little like Boogie Nights, are period pieces. So I wonder if he just doesn't see <laughs> John Bryan working in a period piece and if he ever made if Paul Thomas Anderson ever made a movie that took place in present day if he would pull John Bryan back or if that moment is now long gone well yeah I, I don't really know I do think that John Bryan and I think this is a strength but I could see a filmmaker wanting to get away from it he has a very distinct style and yeah. The film composer he reminds me the most of is Quincy Jones. Okay. In that, first of all, like Quincy Jones, he bounces between being a songwriter and a producer in the pop world and Mm -hmm. also being a composer. And his scores have this sort of like, they're there. They're jazzy and orchestral. And then with... John Bryan, his stuff is jazzy or orchestral, but it also has this sort of Beatlesque, Nilsonesque, bittersweet, whimsical quality that, and I think because he was involved in several 
really important films of the late 90s and early aughts. He yeah. kind of stamped that time with that sound. For sure. And yeah. so, you know, if you're if you want to create the mystique of There Will Be Blood, that's not the guy for that. Yeah. Uh, um, which is not to say that, like, again, it's I don't want to, it's not a weakness. I'm, I would be more interested, I would always be more interested to listen to a John Bryan score on its own than a Johnny yeah. Greenwood score on its own for the very reason that if I was a director who wanted my film to be about my film and not about the guy doing the score, that I would rather work with a composer like Johnny Greenwood who is able to do brilliant stuff but also sort of get out of the way of it like John Bryan is sort of too much he's sort of too good to be that invisible (laughs) and I think that's probably something we could discuss as we look at his development as a composer because he's still doing stuff he did uh, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird and that soundtrack that score is, is, is beautiful and sounds like John Bryan and also has there's a maturity like you can see that he matured uh, as a as a composer but uh, maybe this is a good time to get into talking about the different films that John Bryan has composed sure the scores for yeah so let me bring this up here so yeah so we start with like we said Hard Eight Magnolia, his contributions to Boogie Nights, and Punch Drunk Love. Pretty great way to start as a composer uh, with the first the first films of probably the greatest director of his generation, right? I mean, yeah. American, greatest American director. I don't think there's, is there anyone who's, is there anyone else who you feel like is in the in the running for that? Like Um, I mean, I would say Tarantino. He was a few years before, but it's still nineties. Guys who started in the nineties. For American directors. I feel like those are the two people that like to me are like have proven over time to just continue to be amazing and make groundbreaking movies unlike any other. And it makes sense that they're friends. You know, like, like I can't. I think those two to me are the ones that I always think of. I'm like, who are the great filmmakers from the '90s that started in the '90s? It's those two. Yeah, and with that being said, and it, you know, it's a little bit unfair because Tarantino was first, so Paul Thomas Anderson got to build himself his own thing on top of. Tarantino's, whereas Tarantino has stayed consistent to what he did. But I think if you compare the two, I think Tarantino's films might be more fun, but I think it's hard It's hard to argue that Paul Thomas Anderson's films aren't greater in terms of yeah. just... Yeah, he's just... He, he seemed... Maybe it's similar to, like John, to, to John Bryan in the sense that Quentin Tarantino is a pop artist who has a sound, and when you go to yeah. see a Tarantino film, you're going to get what you expect. Whereas with a Paul Thomas Anderson film, you never get what you expect. 
And yeah, and it's definitely more challenging. It's like he's more the artist who's really pushing stuff, whereas Tarantino is just really, really good at what he does. And this sort of going back to the the negative letter we got back for uh, Strange Love of Martha Ivers. We don't want to set up these two people as being against each other. Like you said, they're friends. And uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's a, there's definitely I guess there's just some I want to give appreciation to Paul Thomas Anderson and also just point out the crazy synchronicity that Paul Thomas Anderson and John Bryan meet up at Largo around these singer songwriters who are both more famous than both of them when they meet and then have gone on to such amazing careers. But then following Punch Drunk Love, Brian does what I consider to be two scores that are even better. I think the two, to me, the two great ones, which is his work on Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind and I Heart Huckabees. And I Heart Huckabees, I actually consider to be John Bryan's sophomore solo record. He made one solo album called Meaningless, which I thought was going to make him a big star and didn't. And I think that's when he, at the point when he sort of started really focusing in on the film scores. But the soundtrack and score to I Heart Huckabees really feels like, because there are real songs and he's singing them on it. And if you want a second John Bryan record, that's probably... Well, until we get another one, that's the only one we've got. Uh, so what do you think about... Let's let's talk about those two films, because I think those two are really, really important. And let's not... Uh, let's do them one at a time. So let's start with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. What do you think yeah. about that film and uh, Bryan's score, particularly? I think that... I think it's maybe his best score, in my opinion. And because that movie... Because what's different about that movie than, like, Punch Trunk Love is that it's it's really sad. It's a very sad movie. That movie taps into a certain type of feeling that you get when you break up or with love or heartbreak that like that like no movie I think has really gone into before. And the soundtrack just adds so much to that because like it has that little bit of like what you said like kind of the whimsy that his other music has, but it ha- it has more of a like this sort of like sad bittersweet sound to it that like really sticks with you and it really invokes lots of emotions and feelings when you hear it when you watch it together with the images it's just like that is such a strong score like he should have won an oscar for that score i don't know what did that year that wasn't that movie (laughs) but like that is one of the great scores in my opinion yeah, and that was around that was uh, that features that great uh, Beck performance on the last on the final song, and that was a time when John Bryan was also performing with Beck. So it's like, again, I think there's this quality with him of bridging the worlds, the pop world and the score world, in a way that I think most times doesn't really work. I feel like mm-hmm. maybe with him and Quincy Jones are the the examples that uh, the examples of times that really did work, but uh, yeah, I love I I'm right with you the 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 ennui and again, but it's also yeah. so beautiful. That's the thing is yeah. you can do sad, but this is like a transcendent sadness, and I feel like music like. 
Only music can really do that. Nominated for an original for the original score. <laughs> nominated in that year were Howard Shore, who won for Lord of the Rings, uh, sure. Danny Elfman for Big Fish, Gabriel Yared for Cold Mountain, Thomas Newman for Finding Nemo, and James Horner for House of Sand and Fog. Have you? Do you have and House I, of the the record for House of Sand and Fog? <laughs> oh man, I love it. <laughs> no, but like all those movie soundtracks, totally great. But they're definitely more of the... Maybe it's because like th- those soundtracks are the more traditional. Like the Howard Shore soundtrack, I really love. And it's very memorable for Lord of the Rings. But it is sort of... It fits very well into that John Williams sort of... You know, like this is a soundtrack to a movie. And what's so interesting about Jar and Brian and maybe why like folks like the Academy get confused by it is it's not your typical... Like, I'm hitting the strings to be sad. I'm hitting a, you know, like a tuba to make things seem like this. It's just like, it's not your typical type of score. And that's why we're talking about him as opposed to some, you know, John Bryan. Uh, we're talking about John Bryan as opposed to some John Williams soundtrack. You know, like, it's more interesting. It's not just, he's not just emulating classical music and lining up with a movie, which I think most composers kind of do, in my opinion. Like, and not, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But John Bryan's doing it in a different... Like he's, he's, he's approaching it in a different way. Yes, he is. And uh, so let's, let's move on from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Great film. Written by Charlie Kaufman. To I Heart Huckabees. And uh, John Bryan's score for that film. Do you like Art, I Heart Huckabees? Oh, I love it! I love that movie. <laughs> it's great. It mo- like the, when when I first saw that movie, I was instantly in love with it. And again, with the John Bryan soundtrack. Yeah, I will be playing snippets of the music, and I will definitely be playing some of that soundtrack in this. Oh, that score! It's well, it's a score and soundtrack. We got to be clear about this. It's something unattainable that you can't live. And now the unexplainable as you riddled with doubt things begin things decay and you've gotta find a way to be okay but if you wanna spend the day wondering what it's all about 
Just to set these in time, we got Punch Drunk Love from 2002, and then in 2004, in one year, he does Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and I Heart Huckabees. Wow. Yeah. And That's and just like with Punch year. Drunk Love, it, to get to, you know, like, you can wish to have one of those movies under your belt, you know? Like, they do both in the same year as Crazy. But, like, just like with Punch Drunk Love, like, I Heart Huckabees, like, the music is so much a part of what's going on in that movie. Like, especially when you have in the scenes where it's Dustin Hoffman kind of breaking down, like, the philo- his philosophy and all these things, and, like, the, with the visuals, and the music plays with that and works with that so well, it doesn't feel like it was, again, done later in the editing. You know, like, it feels like there's a relationship there. Like, there's a dance going on between filmmaker and composer. And that's the only time I feel David O. Russell's had that happen in a movie. Tommy, you and me in the air are actually tiny particles that are swirling around together. Look right here, you see? Okay. Well, look at the cracks between these particles and the cracks we fall through, the holes of nothingness. Exactly, because that's what I just experienced upstairs. Look closer. There are tiny particles connecting the larger cubes. Yeah, and then tinier cracks between the connections. And even tinier connections. And even tinier cracks. Yeah, but if you look close enough, you can't tell where my nose ends and space begins because they're unified. See? So what? You can't see any of this anyway. Do you see anything? No. But I want to debate this particle cube thing. You live all the time with things you can't see. You can't see electricity, can you? You can't see radio waves, but you accept them. Trust. Fuck trust! Like, that, like that, that's why that movie's so special. Like, it really is just like the, like this relationship he's having with his composer. He, I don't think he ever had again in another movie. Yeah. And that's one of those movies where I feel like... It's one of those movies where the director is really wrong about their own film. Like, this, the world is wrong about I Heart Huckabees in the sense that David O. Russell is wrong about I Heart Huckabees. He, when you hear him talk about it, he describes it as a case where he just he went too far and he he just indulged too much. And then you see that his follow-ups are like, oh, I need to make movies that are a little bit more boring, you know, <laughs> serious. Yeah. We can't have John Bryan involved in that. We need a, you know, we need a, yeah. a brooding boxer movie. And it's yeah. Like, and... It's like he went too... Like in his mind, he went so far that he had to go to make more traditional you know, quote-unquote Oscar-type movies, like, after... Like, he never... Like, I Heart Huckabees is his best movie. Sorry, David O. Russell. That's your best movie. <laughs> yeah, and your <laughs> second best is Flirting with Disaster, so... Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and he was... He was a... He was, like, I wish we were talking about him in the same way we were talking about Paul Thomas Anderson, because, like, from Flirting with Disaster to, like, Three Kings to I Heart Huckabees, like, those three movies are so good. Oh, yeah, Three Kings. I put Three Kings ahead of uh, Flirting with Disaster. Sorry. Like, they have such... Like, there's such a confidence in the style and in, like, the mix of this strange and and quirky, and, like, those movies are not like other movies. Like, Flirting with Disaster is not like any other kind of low-budget indie movie at the time. Three Kings is not like any war movie, Gulf War movie at the time, and I Heart Huckabees is like, I can't even compare it to anything. It's its own thing. There's no movie like it. Yeah. And it's just sad, like, it's sad that, like, it felt like he was building something, and definitely with I Heart Huckabees building something with John Bryan, and then he just was, yeah, now I'm just gonna make movies where Bradley Cooper is sad and we're all acting, and yeah, I just say it's not as, it's, not, not to say that some of those movies aren't good, and some of them are, but it just isn't special anymore. 
you know? Like, it's kind of lost that. And, like, the John Bryan soundtrack in Iron Huckabees is so special. It's so, like, I feel it's maybe his weirdest soundtrack. Well, I think it's his most John Bryan. I think it's the yeah, most and- John Bryan-y thing that he has done. Like, like I said, it's a score that also functions as a solo album for John Bryan. <laughs> And 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 that's not a, a, that's not a negative. That's a positive. That's like, you know, that's like the graduate. You're it, when you're doing that. That's like at graduate yeah. level. And at the same time, with the graduate, they were just grabbing. It was just they were just grabbing songs off the record. They weren't create. They didn't create the score. Like Paul Simon didn't write yeah. the score for for the graduate. So it's, I yeah. think it's but. In turn, I don't think it's hard to think of any. There probably is another example of a band or an artist working with a filmmaker and making a, one of that filmmaker's great films, but also doing it in a way that is such a personal expression of their own aesthetic. Yeah. Um, but I can't think of one right now. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to think of what, like, yeah, what's a movie soundtrack where it's also like it's a great album by that person? It's not just a soundtrack. You know, it could exist on its own, you know, just as a great you know, piece of music. It's Pur- Purple Rain. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, but that's you know, like that's like a different thing. I right. think exactly. He's the star, and like I could maybe maybe like Shaft with Isaac Hayes doing the Shaft soundtrack, but even still, a lot of that just kind of feels like a soundtrack. Like the Shaft song is great. Did Curtis Mayfield do the score for... Yeah, so Superfly, I think that's definitely the closest. Because that Superfly is, is a great Curtis Mayfield album. Like, that on its own, is without the movie, is a great album. And there's a lot of songs on there. There's Pusher Man, there, there's Give Me Your Love, like like that. So maybe that's the closest. Maybe it's Curtis Mayfield with Superfly. And like we said, after I Heart Huckabee's... David O. Russell tried to do basically like what Paul Thomas Anderson did, but as you say, not sort of like the instead of the films getting bigger and more challenging, they got smaller and easier to to pigeonhole. Yeah, yeah it's kind of too bad. <laughs> you know. So it's like he kind of yeah we we can talk about David Russell all day but we're here to talk about John Bryan. <laughs> so what did he do after I Heart Huckabee? So this is when so at this point he has pretty much established himself as the by in 2004 if you're making a movie you want to get John Bryan for a lot of people, I guess. He's just, he's at a point where he's not, he's kind of taking whatever, what he wants to take. And he does, he starts doing, it feels like they're good jobs, but they're maybe a little bit more jobs for the money. Like he does the breakup and stepbrothers and the other guys. And those are good scores, but they're comedies. They don't, I don't feel like they... They just don't have that sort of rich feeling that the films we've been speaking about before do. They're really good. Again, he's great, and I feel like I feel like he's a certainly a sort of the a better iteration of that Randy Newman or <laughs> um, oh Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. 
Yes. Like yeah. pop star guy who, or almost pop star guy or indie darling who then becomes a composer. And now John Bryan is that guy. But I think he's just better than both of those guys. No offense. I love Danny Elfman and I really love Randy Newman. But John Bryan, in the years, the intervening years, has never sort of devolved into that level of self-parody, I think. And I think that's just a, I think that's just because he has, he has more tools at his disposal than yeah. and uh, it, those guys. And at least with Step Brothers, you get that weird commentary track that he wrote music for the commentary. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. There's a, there's like a John Bryan scored commentary track that for Step Brothers. Oh wow. I've only heard about it. I've not listened to it, but it sounds interesting. And I guess this is also an important point to mention. So the scene at Largo wasn't just music. It was also groundbreaking comedy. It was Mr. Show started at Largo. Uh, Sarah Silverman, Paul F. Tompkins. That was the first place I saw John C. Riley performing as a songwriter and doing like sort of comedy song stuff. So it makes sense that just like John Bryan gets drawn into the world of all these star performers who are playing around Largo and in films by serious directors, but also that he gravitates towards comedy. And in the midst of these comedies, though, he makes the saddest score for the saddest movie <laughs> it's called Synecdoche, New York from <laughs> the saddest man in film Charlie Kaufman his directorial <laughs> debut and we're going to get into a place where there, were, there are a lot of scores on this list that I have not heard yet so I, I and I can't speak about uh, fully but I feel like Synecdoche is probably the last great John Bryan score that I'm aware of. I, I really like, and, and I've uh, like, we'll get to Lady Bird. I really enjoy Lady Bird and I love the future, but I feel like Synecdoche is just a huge film and a huge swing as an artist. And John Bryan's music is essential to it. If his music weren't there, can you, like, because there is that weird sense of humor in his sadness and yeah like the bittersweet thing that you just can't fake and you can't reverse engineer that <laughs> well I, I feel like if John Bryan had continued to do scores for Charlie Kaufman's films they would be better films I feel like he's a great voice for <laughs> Charlie Kaufman and I'm, I miss yeah his, I miss him when I see Anomalisa I feel like Anomalisa would be more pleasant if it had John Bryan. Well, that's the thing about Synecdoche is that, and I'm glad you called it correctly, working at a view store, I heard so many versions of that word. <laughs> do you have Synodoche? Do you have Syndoche? Like, oh my God, no. But uh, that, what, like, Charlie Kaufman, who is brilliant, uh, he needs that little, like, he needs that little bit of sugar to go with his sour. You know, like, that's why, like, Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry could do such a good job because those guys, I think, were known for being funny, for making funny, weird music videos. And so when you take 
uh, a script from Charlie Kaufman, who is a more bitter, angry man than I think John Bryan or <laughs> Michelle Gondry or Spike Jones. Like he's definitely like working with intense passion and anger and, and frustration with many things in the world. And so when he's now at the helm directing his own script, you need a John Bryan soundtrack to make sure you don't kill yourself after watching the movie. Like you need that to lift you up just a little bit, just a little bit. And it definitely, I think, makes the movie funnier. It's like, I think the, the, the soundtrack allowed me to laugh more through the movie or let me kind of remind me in my head, this is supposed to be funny. Like this isn't, like yes, it's dark, but it's supposed like this there's a humor there's a dark dark humor to it but there is humor there and i think john bryan helps kind of move that like i haven't seen the new charlie coffin movie but the trailers don't look funny at all like i know they'll be it'll be funny but it's just like i think he needs to have someone kind of put a little bit of light in that darkness even if it's just like a pen light if it's just john bryan is like flashing a little pen light i think you need that <laughs> I agree. I love, I, I love, <laughs> love, love Charlie Kaufman, and I will, I will go to hell with him if he wants to take me there. <laughs> and I would appreciate, I would definitely appreciate if John Bryan fell back into the fold with, uh, with Kaufman's work. That would be wonderful. John Bryan's contributions to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Synecdoche, New York, really do make him, I don't know, Kaufman's best composer. Yeah. I think. So... Who, who, oh, go on. Who, who's, who's done the last two Charlie Kaufman movies? Who did the music for those? Is it the same person or has it been different people? Do you know? I do not know. But okay. I can look it up. Jay Wadley. And he did the music for, well, not a lot of stuff I've seen. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know why you want to work with Jay Wadley instead of, uh, instead of John Bryan, Charlie Kaufman, but get your shit together. <laughs> so moving on, this is where we get into the work between 2010 and now, and this is where I have kept up with some of it, but I'm not 100%. Are there any films that you want to talk about between 2010 and now? I think uh, his soundtrack for Paranorman is good. That's a great movie. And his and it's, again, like it adds, it adds to the movie. It's definitely not as showy as his other stuff. It's not as memorable, but it is really good. And it's like, I think... He should do more kids' movies. Like, I think in the same way that, like, Mark Mothersbaugh works well with Wes Anderson when he's doing, like, his kids' stuff. Like, there's something about having a grown-up who uses all these interesting, weird little instruments. Like, and some of these instruments were originally made as, like, children's toys or things for kids. And they can make sense that someone like that would do a really good soundtrack for a kids' movie. And Paranorman is definitely a very good soundtrack. Like you should def like you haven't seen it, you should check it out. Like I really like that one a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of the future. This the score for the future, Miranda July's second film. Yeah, that's a that's a, a very haunting score. I think he's definitely there's some there's some there's some haunt in there. Yeah, it's one of the ones that I feel like 
probably something about Miranda July must have really inspired him because you can hear that he's he's not allowing himself to use some of his tricks. Yeah. It reminds me, it actually reminds me of the kind of thing, the kind of experimentation that he would do at Largo to get himself out of his comfort zone. It's like, okay, it's almost like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to play this guitar with one hand tied behind my back. He never did that. But those kind of things, like, okay, well, I'm just not going to, if I'm going to be working with this really interesting artist, Miranda July, I don't want it to sound like a John Bryan soundtrack. I want it to sound like a Miranda July film. And so, okay, the whimsical keyboards, we're going to lose those. We're going to lean more into drones and into just wherever, where the film takes us. And I think that's, I think that's maybe the facility that John Bryan brings that is this extra layer that even someone like... In the moment before it happened, I kept thinking, but I'm theirs. I belong to them. And then it happened. I died. Really. But even dead, I stayed in my cage. Because I just couldn't believe it. I wasn't done waiting for them. Just let me wait forever. Knowing they will one day come. Should be boredom by now I know the tricks Of the trade But it goes on anyhow Sometimes the answers Are ready on Prince but even someone like Prince doesn't have because Prince is so famous and Prince is so Prince that his stuff always sounds like you he can't get away from Prince whereas John Bryan is a good enough musician and he's a hidden enough persona that he actually can get away from John Bryan musically and still be it's still a John Bryan score yeah and I think he's more successful at that than Danny Elfman is. Like, Danny Elfman, I think, got so far away from what he was known for that it kind of he's kind of disappeared now. And you can't... T- like, I'll be shocked sometimes when I see a movie and go, oh, 
Danny Elfman did that soundtrack? I couldn't tell. <laughs> I did this. I didn't know, because it kind of lost his sound in a way by tr maybe trying to play it too safe or trying to appease whoever. And it's good that John Bryan still like can yeah get away from the strong distinct sound that we know from the movies that we've been talking about, but still retain that thing that's his. So we're at 2012 when he does Paranorman, the same year he did This Is 40. Do you like This Is 40? I have not seen it. I turned 40 and I was going to, but because I live in a post-video store world, I couldn't find it. <laughs> I couldn't find it anywhere. And, you know, uh, Judd Apatow's, I'm okay with by some of his stuff, so I don't know. I'll definitely watch it by the time I'm not, before I'm not 40 anymore. <laughs> well, I like, I like Apatow, and... Apatow definitely likes John Bryan. John Bryan showed up. He didn't do the music for it, but he was in Funny People with Adam Sandler as the one of the musicians that the Sandler character hires to be in his band. <laughs> um, so, I, are, do you, are you do you like Funny People? I like the first hour. In the last hour, I'm not. I think they're not go on too much of a rant. I think Jed Apatow is like John Cougar Mellencamp to James L. Brooks as Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? Does that analogy make sense? I think I think Judd Apatow is more like Tom Petty. But <laughs> sure. equally good, but not as, you know, not as many, like a lot more singles and not as many home runs, let's say. Uh, sure. But I love them both. Uh, okay, so we're getting, so in 2003, we're just, I'm just going to list off some of these because I have not seen most of these. Have you seen the uh, seen Delivery Man with Vince, Vince Vaughn? No. Me neither. Can't talk about it. The Gambler with Mark Wahlberg. No. That looks kind of interesting. Trainwreck. Back to Judd Apatow with Amy Schumer. Great movie. Don't remember the soundtrack at all. Uh, John Mulaney, The Comeback Kid. No. Nope. Curmudgeons. This is, seems like a film I would like. It's... <laughs> What, it's a, a, two, a 2016 American comedy short film directed, produced by, and starring Danny DeVito. Okay. Oh, okay. So it's a short <laughs> film uh, with Danny DeVito. I want, I want to see that. I want to see that a lot. Then, this is a film I've seen, but I didn't know that John Bryan did the score for it. Wilson from 2017, starring Woody Harrelson. Okay. Have you seen that film? No. It's fun. Uh, I, it makes me want to go check out... Check out the score. Then we have... Lady Bird. Obviously, I've been talking about that a fair amount. You've, you're on record as refusing to see this film. <laughs> Not refusing. I just haven't watched it yet. It came up <laughs> on a previous episode. You're just like, haven't seen it. <laughs> and you sounded proud when you said that. And I was like, I don't understand this. 
yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, obviously, Lady Bird's an excellent film, and Greta Gerwig is an excellent artist, and the music on for for Lady Bird is is wonderful, and I feel like this is maybe a good point thing to uh, a good time to point out that. In the early 90s, if you were sort of a virtuoso musician guy, it wasn't just the standard thing that, okay, I'm going to collaborate with a lot of women. That was a, it was, it was still sort of a, a, I don't want to say a newer thing, but it wasn't where we are right now. Like women in rock just were still trying to establish themselves and get over a bunch of a bunch of the sexism in the industry and you know just seeing them as just singers and hot things to put on album covers and John Bryan from the jump he comes in working with Amy Mann And, uh, and we're going to get into some of to the artists that he worked that he's worked with. And here we have through in his career, he's also working with artists like Miranda July and Greta Gerwig. And there just must be something about him that it's again, it comes from this kind of confidence when you're so talented. A lot of the other like ways that you might that a younger and more immature musician might feel like they have to posture, that you just don't have to, that you can afford to be generous, you can afford to be in the background, you can afford to support the artists that inspire you and to yeah. and who balance you out. And I just feel like that's we don't need to to lean on that too heavily, but I just feel like it's it's something that's important to recognize. It's almost I don't want to say that he's a feminist artist, but he's definitely a feminist adjacent artist. And considering how many powerful women who he's worked with and supported in a really generous way, like on those Amy Mann records that he produced, he never he would give himself a producer credit on a song. But like if someone else came in on a song, like if someone produced one other song on the record, he wouldn't be the producer on the record. And I just feel like there's this, that's something that comes from a kind of confidence. It's like the strong guy in a movie who doesn't have to punch anyone because all he has to do is make a fist and everyone's like, okay, point taken, John Wayne. And I think it's rare for someone with this much talent and like, who, like yeah, is a, a just genius to be able to collaborate like that without the, the ego clash, you know? Like in a way he kind of reminds me of Brian Eno in that way. Like yeah. Brian Eno, who I think is a genius, who's amazing, but Brian Eno is not afraid to take the back seat to like, you know, Talking Heads or you know David Bowie or whoever he's collaborating with, you know, or like he will put their name as big as his name on any of his albums. Like it's supposedly his solo album, well, but it's not really because it's him collaborating and the collaboration is listed there equally. And like I think he's the only other person I can think of that like is brilliant in their own way, but not afraid to like help someone else out with their talent 
and definitely add to it and maybe even definitely make it better, but not have so much of an ego being like, but my name's gotta be, I'm the guy, you know, like he's able to step back a bit and let the other people take the limelight, even though he knows in his head, yeah, it's because of me that this is so great. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we're, we're down to his the, the most recent films after Lady Bird are two films listed on his Wikipedia. Sink or Swim, a French, a French film from 2018 directed by Gilles Lelouch. Have you seen this film, Sink or Swim, or are you familiar with Gilles Lelouch? Nope. Nope. Nor am I. And finally, Christopher Robin from 2018, starring Ewan McGregor. There you go. And I haven't seen that. Have you seen that? I have not. But I bet that's a good score because, again, it's a kid's movie, and I can see that working really well, like that kind of working together, his score in a movie with Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. And it makes me wonder what's what's next up for him. But, uh, so... We're about to move from the score work to the discussion of his songwriting production in the pop world. Is there anything else you want to address on the film and score front? What? So you made this movie and you gave me a copy where you took moments from these movies with his score. What was that for? What did you make that for? Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so well, that was a film that I put together called John Bryan's Synchrosonic Cinema. And I will uh, provide a link to it in the show notes. And I didn't make this for anything. I made this because I'm obs- I got obsessed with <laughs> connecting, with just trying to get to the heart of what it is about John Bryan as a cinematic artist, as a composer in film, that makes all of these films that he is not the creator of feel like John Bryan films as much as if he was a lead actor in all of these scenes. I feel like the music is such a character, and it's a character Mm -hmm. that carries from film to film that just really puts his stamp, his musical stamp on the best films between, you know, basically the best films of the millennium, of Mm -hmm. the turn of the millennium. So from like 1998, 99 to 2004, 2005, you just have this quality where you can actually cut between scenes in different directors' films and you feel like a continuity. Did you feel that continuity? Yeah. No, it totally worked. It totally works. Like, is it a thing that people can see? Yeah, it's on, on. It's on Vimeo. So I, like I said, I'll put a link to it. It's a, it's an hour and forty-seven minute thing. So I'm, first of all, thanks for watching it, Brian. I, I know your time is, <laughs> is valuable. Were there any? I'll, I'll share it with people, and I don't know really how to talk about it other than what I just said, but were there any insights or particular parts of the film you'd want to direct anyone's attention to? I think what I liked about it is that you kind of, or the way that it's put together, it, it, it reminds me of how much I hate the auteur theory and how it's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> 
And I think it's part of why people are wrong about Punch Drunk Love. It's just like watching the movie you put together. I'm thinking about it as a movie made by John Bryan. I'm not thinking like, a, here's a part by Paul Thomas Anderson. Here's a part by Miranda July. Here's a part by Charlie Kaufman. Like it was like, oh, this is the John Bryan movie with these with this thing. And that's the problem with the auteur theory is it's all focused on the director. It's all like the director, he's the author. He's the author of the movie. It's his movie. It's their movie, blah, blah, blah. And that's just a bunch of crap. And it's just clear with the movies we've been talking about. It's like Eternal Sunshine, yes, is a Michelle Gondry movie, but it sure as hell is also a Charlie Kaufman movie. And it's definitely a John Bryan movie. And just the whole, I mean, I'm very against a film by and then the person's name. Like, I think that is so stupid. And even filmmakers, I love do it. But it's like, it is truly collaborative. And John Bryan is as much an author of, of Punch Drunk Love as Paul Thomas Anderson is. And I think your movie really shows that. It's like, he is part, uh, he's either the music's either a character in the movie, or it is what you're feeling from the movie, or it's like part of, the, just part of the whole the, the web work that's the that's, that's the piece of art that's the film yeah yeah and that is called synchrosonic cinema and as of our conversation it's been viewed five times hey let's move it to seven <laughs> let's so <laughs> I, I haven't really I, I sent it to I sent it to John uh, so full disclosure I've been trying men, for years to get John Bryan to come on Radio 8 Ball and so I have a a friendly relationship with his representatives in the sense of that uh, they are polite in declining my requests. <laughs> but I did send this to, and when I, in, and I did send this to them and I'll send them this podcast as well, just because, um, well, just because I, I, I feel like, I don't know whether or not they'd want to know, but they'd, I guess if they didn't, if they weren't informed, they would have wished they were. So, uh, so yeah. Sure. Um, great. Well, let's. This seems like a good place to transition, and this is going to go long, folks. We just there's just too much in John Bryan's uh, musical career to to not go long. So. <laughs> Brian. Yes, Andras. We can't do this. What? If we keep going, this episode is going to be over four hours. We have to keep going. I know. I have an idea. What? Let's cut it into two parts, and we can play the second part where we explore John Bryan's career as a songwriter, producer, and session musician as an extra-long New Year's episode. That's brilliant, Brian. No wonder your other podcast, The Director's Wall, where you explore a filmmaker's entire filmography with A.J. Gonzalez is so damn great. Coming from the creator and host of Radio 8 Ball, the best damned musical divination podcast in the world, that means a lot. So, let me get this straight. Next week on the World is Wrong podcast, we'll be covering Paul Simon's One Trick Pony film. And then the John Bryan Part 2 episode will come out on December 29th in time for New Year's. It's like a John Bryan's birthday miracle. It is. And if any of you listeners have suggestions or comments, you can reach out to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com and on our Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And until next time, just remember, the world is wrong. 
and it's probably wrong about you. <laughs> if you'd like to hear most of the songs featured on this episode, we've created a Spotify playlist and posted it on our website on the page devoted to this episode.
Why the fuck not? God, I feel suitably freed up after that. Oh, hi, welcome. <laughs> What's he gonna do? I don't know, maybe some soundtrack stuff or something. <laughs> It's weird avant-garde stuff in Eternal Sunshine. I don't know, maybe we'll hit some of that. <laughs> That's it. It'll just be fucking classic rock from then. That <laughs> <laughs> was great. Half like, wah, and they were like, oh, good. I've actually got you scared. I want to keep you on your toes. I want to keep this relationship fresh. <laughs> I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Do you call yourself a music fan? Are you the one making the playlist for all the parties? Then you've got to listen to the Pinch Music Podcast, where we interview musicians, engineers, producers, and music lovers of all types. We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles vs. Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you've got to check out the Pinch Music Podcast. All a part of the Paperhouse Network.